0: At this time, to Children's Church. All children through the third grade can head on out. And the rest of us, you can take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 9. Continuing on our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9 in our Bibles. You ever had an aha moment before? Right, or, or a light bulb moment where, where where stuff just clicked. You're working on this problem and thinking about something, and then, boom, it all kind of comes together. It's kind of an interesting process, isn't it? A, a creativity where you're thinking about something and you're ruminating about something, and then at like two in the morning, you wake up and you're like, oh, there it is! Like there's there's the answer. It, it finally clicked. Or you're in there, you're just taking a shower, watching TV, and boom, there it is—an aha moment, a light bulb moment. Kind of known to history as a Eureka moment, right? We know the story about Archimedes. He's trying to figure out if the king's crown is really made out of gold or not. And he's taking a bath and he realizes, hey, the water overflows and displaces the mass of the object that's in it. And he has this moment where he says, Eureka, I have found it. That's what the word means, Eureka, I have found it. We're going to think about a literal light light bulb moment. Thomas Edison, right, after trying thousands of different things, finally figured out how to make the incandescent light bulb work Uh, Just an amazing moment. Or the story goes that uh, Newton, right, the guy who wrote all of those physics laws, is sitting there. There's a, there's a, a a pandemic going through Cambridge University. So he goes off to the country. He's sitting out there. He sees an apple fall off the tree. And he's like, you know, why does stuff fall to the ground? And from that, he allegedly, so the story goes, comes up with the, the laws of gravity that we, uh, we still have. By the way, the people who are pilots, I've seen this bumper sticker before. It says, gravity is just a theory. So, so there you go. They're going to defy that. A um, dad teaches at an aeronautical university, and so that sticker's kind of all over with these pilots. Gravity is just a theory. But an aha moment, a light bulb moment, where, where things make sense, where things fall into place. Our text today... Opens with one such light bulb moment. Only it's not the disciples who hit the light switch, right? It's not that Peter hits the light switch and he comes up with it. We find out in the other gospels, God is the one who hits the light bulb switch for them. For months now, for years now, the, the, the disciples have been hanging out with Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus. They have watched him work miracles. They, they believe that there is something special about him. They, they, they've committed themselves to him. They've watched him calm the storm. They've seen him cast demons out, feed 5,000 men at one time, plus women and children. They've seen him raise the dead. And there's been a question that's been brewing in their minds over recent chapters. It started back in chapter 8, verse 25, where they say, who then is this? He's calming the storm. There's more about Jesus than what we can understand. Right before the feeding of the 5,000, Herod is asking the same question. Who is this? It's not John the Baptist. We don't know who this guy is. Well, look with me in Luke 9, picking up in verse 18. And it came to pass that as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And here it is. Peter said, The Christ of God. Right, in, the, in Matthew's account, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That hymn that we just sang is that, that glorious confession. That's a staggering claim. To say that the man that they have been fishing with, that they have been hanging out with, that they've been following and listening to, and, and doing all these things with, he is the Messiah. That's what that word Christ means the anointed, the promised one of God. And more than that, he is the Son of God, that, they, that he has divinity. That is a staggering claim to make that, these, that Peter makes that on behalf of the apostles' light bulb moment. Now, Jesus in Matthew's gospel says, Peter, flesh and blood's not revealed unto you, but my father has. This is a God hits the light switch for them, and boom, it comes together. They understand who Jesus is. But notice what happens. Verse 21, and he straightly charged them. That is strictly, warns them, commands them. He's giving them in utmost an, an no uncertain terms and way that cannot be understood To tell no man that thing. He says, okay, you got it right, but don't tell anyone. You say, why? what's going on there with that? Saying, verse 22, the son of man, that is a reference to Jesus, must suffer many things. He must be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, if anybody wants to be one of my disciples, if somebody wants to be a Christian... Let him deny himself uh, dis- deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged? What is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away, forfeit himself? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory And in the glory of his father, in his father's glory, and of the holy angels, I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Jesus pivots immediately from this confession of his messiahship to a discussion of the cross. He's like, yeah, I'm the messiah, yep, you're you're right about that, but I'm a messiah who's going to suffer and die on a cross. And he says, by the way, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you also have to be willing to go to the cross at this point in the Gospel of Luke, and actually also Mark and Matthew, the story takes a real change. <clears throat> Excuse me, I my water down here. I forgot to bring this with me. The story takes a real change, a real turn, where the focus is going to become on the cross. From this point until the end of Luke, Jesus is going to be marching closer and closer to the cross. He'll set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And here's where the change happens, this first prediction. He's going to predict... Not just once, not just twice, but three different times, the reality of the cross. He knew what was coming. So here's the message this morning, is that the cross changes everything. It changes not just the trajectory of the the gospel of Luke, but it literally changes everything in history. There's a reason why historians use B.C. and A.D. to talk about history, because at the center of history is the work and the person of Jesus. Okay, B.C. before Christ, A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. It doesn't line up perfectly. They got their dates a little messed up on that. But the point being, at the center of history is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Christ it, it is going to give us the message that we declare. It's going to shape our priorities. It's going to determine our eternal destiny. It's going to dominate our worldview. And we as Christians, according to verse 23, are to be people of the cross. The cross is to be what defines us. It is what defines Jesus' messiahship. It is to be the greatest reality in our lives. The cross changes everything. The cross changes everything. So let's talk through four realities this morning that the cross changes. Number one, the cross defines our message. It defines our message. Verses 18, 19, and 20 gives us really the foundational confession of Christianity. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Right? That's, that is the most foundational confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he is God in the flesh. That's our message, right? But he's not just any Messiah. He's a Messiah who suffers and he dies. And he dies for us, we see in verse 22. So looking, looking at this text, it says that Jesus was alone praying. You know, Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us that before this amazing confession, Jesus was praying. At crucial points in Luke's gospel, he will note for us, Jesus was praying. So at his baptism, Luke is the only gospel writer to say that Jesus was praying before his baptism. Here, Jesus is praying. Before he selects the apostles, he prays all night. Before the transfiguration, down in verse 28, he's going into a mountain to pray. Before he goes to the cross, he prays. Prayer precedes in the gospel of Luke these incredible self-revelations of Jesus. Remember, everything Jesus does is in harmony with his Father's will. He's in obedience to his Father. The Father is the one who is setting the plan, and Jesus is following the plan. It says he's praying alone in verse 18. Notice that. He's praying alone. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus and the disciples have gone off on a retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi, known today as Banya Springs. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It is the headwaters for the Jordan River. Absolutely beautiful location. I've gotten to go there. It is one of the most beautiful places in Israel. There's springs. There's rivers. There, it's just, it, but listen, it's outside of Israel. It's, it's in pagan territory. It's in Caesarea Philippi, which was Gentile territory. In fact, there was a temple there to the, to the Roman god Pan. Uh, there was this, uh, known as the gates of hell. So when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, in Matthew's account, that's the illustration he's using. So he's gone off with the disciples into a secluded place. Before the feeding of the 5,000, remember they tried to get away, they're interrupted. Now he's gotten away with the apostles. He's gotten away from the prying eyes and the eavesdropping ears of the nosy crowds, right? He's getting away from everything for this. This is a personal time with the apostles. So he asks them a question. What do people say? What's everyone saying? Notice how he kind of builds up to the crucial question. Okay, what's everyone saying? What are the popular assessments? These are the same assessments, of course, that Herod heard. Look back in verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was being done by Jesus. He's perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, of some, that Elijah had appeared, of others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. So the disciples just repeat to Jesus, here's the popular ideas. If we did a Gallup poll of people in Galilee, people in Palestine, hey, most people, you know, 70% are saying, hey, it's John the Baptist. The other 30% are split between these other options. Here's the point. People regarded Jesus with, with, as a special individual, as a great man. They don't see him as, oh, yeah, he's, he's a liar. No, they see him as a prophet. They see him as incredibly important. Jesus would have won the most admired man in Galilee polls, right? He would have been regarded as sort of man of the year if there were Time magazine. People had high estimations of Jesus of Nazareth. The problem, of course, with these assessments is not that they're inaccurate. Jesus is a prophet, but they're inadequate, He's a prophet, yes, but he is prophet, priest, and king as we sing in praise and praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed redeemer. He's not just a prophet, but he is the Messiah. He is the final word from God. You see, simply seeing Jesus as great is not enough. Right? You can regard Jesus as the greatest moral philosopher, the greatest prophet, one of the greatest religious leaders in the history of the world, and still be lost. Islam regards Jesus as the greatest prophet, right after Muhammad, right? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses regard Jesus as the greatest being God ever created, but he's still less than God. Mormon faith regards Jesus as uh, he was a man that now achieved the status of divinity, not that he is God in the flesh. Inadequate, inaccurate, because they're missing some key things about who Jesus is. So the question is put to them now in verse 20, whom say ye that I am? Here's the thing about greek kind of like spanish you don't have to put your pronouns in there right you can just put a verb pronouns built in when you add the pronoun it's really emphatic so saying whom say ye i'm putting the question to you who do you say what everyone else says is not doesn't matter it doesn't matter what society thinks it doesn't matter what culture thinks but what do you say about jesus right that's what matters whom say ye that i am by the way that is a plural Whom do all of you? He's putting the question not just to Peter or one of the disciples, but to the whole group of disciples. Listen, faith in Jesus Christ is not simply a matter of mouthing someone else's confession of him. The, The option is not going to be any of the options that were listed in verse 19. It's going to be a none of the above something different. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, it's not going to be simply, well, kind of see what everyone in the community says or what everyone in my church says. Um, you know, the stories told about the pastor saying, so what do you, what do you believe? He says, well, I believe what my church believes. So what does your church believe? Well, the church believes what I believe. Okay. There's not really any definition to that, right? What do you believe about Jesus? Could you articulate a biblical understanding of who Jesus is You kind of muddle your way through? Do you own your faith in Jesus? Do you understand what the Bible says about him? And notice verse 20, Peter's answering said, you are the Christ of God. Christ means Messiah, Messiah, Mashiach, Hebrew for the anointed. Brian read Psalm uh, Psalm 2 to us this morning. He says, the heathen are going to lift up their hand against the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. In the Old Testament, there were three classes of people who were anointed. Prophets were often anointed... Right, we see that happening in the Old Testament. Priests were anointed to be installed in their office to say, you're now placed in this position of priest. And kings were anointed. We see Samuel anointing Saul, anointing David, and, and a prophet anointing Solomon. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that he is the one who holds all three offices. He is the prophet, the one who speaks on behalf of God perfectly perfectly. He's the priest, the one who represents us to God. So as prophet, he represents God to us. As priest, he represents us to God. And as king, he rules over everything. By the time, by the time we get to Jesus, the idea of Messiah was reduced to simply being king. Right? We even see that in Psalm 2. Brian read that text to us. The idea that the Lord's king will rule on his holy mountain. They're like, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the son of David. There's all of these promises in the Old Testament about a son of David coming. Who's going to rule? Who's going to reign? And so they were looking for a David-like ruler to come. You see, after centuries of foreign domination, and then a brief respite with the Maccabeans, but they were failed and they were horribly immoral and ineffective. People were hungry for someone like David to come and rescue the nation from the grips of Roman rule, from the grips of moral corruption, from the grips of really just fake religion. So when people say Messiah, they mean something different than what we think. We think, oh, Messiah, yeah, Jesus is the Savior. No, that was liable for misunderstanding. So that's why in verse 21, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. He says that not because what Peter says is false, but because what Peter says is true, right? Jesus is the Messiah, but everybody has these skewed ideas of what the Messiah is, right? They're looking for a really political figure. They're looking for a revolutionary figure, not someone who's going to die on the cross. You see, when I say back to our our, our point here, the cross defines our message. The cross defines our message because the cross defines what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Everybody kind of wants to have a Jesus who's sort of a chameleon who's going to change colors to fit sort of what they want. They want sort of a a Jesus who will fit the mold of what I need right now. Man, you want a sort of political leader? Jesus is the one who we're going to view as our political leader. You need a revolutionary? Well, we'll make Jesus our revolutionary figure. Jesus is not a Jesus who can be shaped into the desires that we want. Rather, he is the Messiah that God determined he would be. His messiahship does not involve killing Romans or establishing an earthly kingdom. It involves suffering. It involves being rejected by the Sanhedrin. It involves dying and rising again. Notice the connection between verse 21 and verse 22. He he commands them to tell no one saying. It's almost like here's the reason. Don't tell anyone I'm the messiah because nobody's going to understand that I've come to be rejected. Verse 22. The cross defines the messiahship of Jesus. Therefore, the cross defines the message of Jesus' people. His messiahship is not defined by human expectation, but by the divine plan of redemption. Everyone expected a king who would come and rule. That's what everybody was ready for. That's what everybody was looking for. Jesus instead comes as a servant who would redeem. Very different than what everyone thought. Jesus has not come into this world, beloved, to effect political change. We have the ability to be involved in politics in this land. I'm thankful for that. But Jesus is not, first and foremost, a political figure. He's not come to unleash social revolution and to help the proletariat rise up against the bourgeois. No, he has come to suffer and to die. He's not the kind of Messiah that we want, but he is the kind of Messiah that we need. The one who deals with the biggest problem imaginable, the problem of sin. So say the cross defines the message that we proclaim. Okay, He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Notice how he picks up this language at the end of Luke's gospel. Flip over a few pages to the right to Luke 24. Luke 24. This is after the resurrection now. And so it's all become clear. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, where the disciples are like, oh, that's what you meant. You'd be crucified by the Romans and you would rise again from the dead. Look at Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the psalms concerning me. Luke 24, verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Notice that's very similar language. By the way, that word behooved is exactly the same Greek word that's translated must Back in our text, the Son of Man must, the Son of, the Son of Man must suffer, rise from the dead the third day. And repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice how Luke 24 verse 47 now now makes the connection for us. You're the Christ. He says, yes, I'm the Christ. Don't tell anyone because I must suffer and die. Now that he has suffered and died and risen again, he says, now it is necessary for you to go tell the world this message that I'm the Messiah who came to suffer. Verse 48, ye are witnesses of these things. What's interesting is when you get to the book of Acts. Remember, I've told you many times the book of Acts is volume two of Luke's history. So you want to see how the book of Luke is worked out in the life of the church? You read the book of Acts. Listen to how Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice how he brings together his crucifixion and his messiahship. Those are not separate things. Those are one and the same. The Old Testament predicted that he would be rejected. Psalm 2, Isaiah 53, Psalm 20, the servant songs in Isaiah, that he would be rejected. We see this again just over a page in Acts 3 and verse 18. But those things which God hath before showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ, okay, Messiah, should suffer, he is so fulfilled. Acts 5 and verse 31, we see this again. Him, that is Jesus, has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins We see it over and over again. The cross is the message we proclaim. We proclaim to the world that Jesus is Messiah, and by proclaiming that, we're saying he's this kind of Messiah, one who suffers and dies. Paul in 1 Corinthians makes it likewise abundantly clear. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Crucified Messiah, those two ideas being brought together over and over again, Messiahship and suffering. And then over in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, listen, if there's anything I want you to know is that Jesus is the Messiah who was crucified. That was the the, the throbbing heartbeat of Paul's ministry was the crucified Christ. So what is the message of your life? Right, if your life were to come to an end tomorrow and you say, okay, what did so-and-so's life say? Not so much what did you do and what job did you have, but what, was, what did it say? What does what, what the dash between those two numbers communicate? And we could all be, oh, man, you really liked football, or, man, you were really into these sort of things. You enjoyed going to the beach. Okay, nothing wrong with those things. God's given us all things richly to enjoy. But would your life proclaim the cross of Jesus what does your life proclaim right now? If Jesus were to stop and evaluate the conversations you had in the last month, how many, if any, had to do with the cross of Jesus, his death on the behalf of sinners? If we were to pull your social media uh, history up on the screen behind us, what would we see as important to you? I'm troubled by the fact that many Christians are more concerned about evangelizing for their political viewpoint than they are evangelizing for Jesus. Jesus. Frankly, if I look through some social media pages, it seems to me that being a Christian means that you hate certain people or certain policies or certain things. If you are more well known for your political viewpoints than for the cross of Jesus, we're doing it wrong, beloved. If you're more well known for your position on vaccines than you are on your position about the victory of Jesus Christ, we're doing it wrong. I'm not saying don't have viewpoints on those things, but I am saying the cross of Jesus should be the message we proclaim. And in fact, those other things may distract from the cross of Jesus. They may take away your ability to proclaim the cross of Jesus. I would rather be silent on politics till my dying day if it gave me the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. What people need is Jesus more than anything else. More than anything else. That is the message that we proclaim. The cross is our message. We proclaim Christ as Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's the promised one. And the promised one who died. The cross changes everything. The cross determines our message. But secondly, the cross determines our destiny. It determines our destiny. Back to Luke chapter 9, verse 22. I want to just zero in on one word here. The Son of Man must suffer. Jesus predicts here what's going to happen. He's going to suffer. That covers all of his trials. He's going to be rejected officially by the Sanhedrin. That's the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. One article in the original, they're all acting together in concert and conspiracy to kill Jesus. And he must be slain, it's a reference to the cross. He must be raised again. But why is there a word must there? This has to happen. He's not just saying this is what will happen. He's saying this is what has to happen. There's a difference between saying I'm going to predict the future... And, and saying this is what has to happen in the future. He's saying this is absolutely necessary to happen. Well, for one thing, this was God's eternal plan. If you read Ephesians 1, you find out that Jesus redeeming his people through the cross was God's plan from eternity past. Right? He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He's predestined us to adoption. And then the very next verse says, "Jesus is the, or the next section talks about how Jesus has come to redeem us. Right? This is God's plan from before the foundation of the world to redeem sinners through Christ. By the way, throughout the Old Testament, God predicts and prophesies. It's not just God looking down the corridors of time and being like, based on my best guesstimate, um, the Messiah will be rejected. That's just going to be what happens. No, this was God's plan for this to happen. Uh, Acts, two and ver- two, Acts 2 verse 23. Paul, uh, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this was by God's Determinant foreknowledge and counsel. This was not just God saying, this is what would happen, this is what must happen. Same comes out in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, Acts 4 and verse 28. It was God's eternal plan, it was necessary to happen. You say, well, hang on a second, what about the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes? They're mentioned there in verse 22. They willfully and angrily and hatefully betrayed Jesus. They weren't being made to do something they did not want to do. It wasn't like God was like, I'm going to force you to do something against your will. No. They, they in their depravity rejected Jesus. They in their sinfulness had him nailed to a cross. And yet what they did fulfilled God's plan. Amazing how their responsibility, God's plan come together. But it still raises the question, why? Why did that have to be God's plan? Why did God redeem, have to redeem sinners? Couldn't he have done it another way? Couldn't he have made it so that his son would not have to suffer and go through all of those things? Well, this is where it gets down to the fact that the cross determines our destiny. The cross was God's redemptive plan, not just his prophetic eternal plan. It was his redemptive plan. This goes back to the very nature of God. God cannot act inconsistent, inconsistently with who he is, right? God cannot come along and say, well, I'm a holy God, but I'm going to actually do something that is unholy. He must always do what is consistent with who he he is in himself. God is utterly holy. He is infinitely perfect. He is righteous, and he hates sin. Sin and God cannot coexist. In fact, that is why in Genesis 2 and verse 17, God tells Adam all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Sin has an infinite penalty because it is committed against an infinite God. All right, that's why sin requires infinite death, infinite judgment Eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire because God is holy and perfect and just. The only way for sinners to be redeemed is either they pay for their own sin, which is eternity in hell, and the debt is never paid because it is infinite, or an infinite being somehow takes the place of sinners and pays that penalty for them. But you can't just have any infinite being. You must have an infinite being who is also a man who can legitimately take the place of man. So you've got to have someone who is infinite, that is divine. And you've got to have someone who is human. And it's got to be the same individual. So how does God do it? He sends his own son into this world. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was truly human. He was truly divine. And he goes to the cross. The reason why the cross happens is not because of the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. It's not because of the Romans. It's because it was God's plan of redemption. It was the only way that sinners could be redeemed. It was the only way that sinners could be made right with God. It was the only way for the wrath of God to be satisfied. And here's what's awesome. The cross accomplishes that very thing. At the cross, Jesus literally acts as the substitute for his people. At the cross, Jesus satisfies God's wrath perfectly. At the cross, Jesus redeems all who would ever believe in him so that they would be his people forever. At the cross, he pays everything that sin requires. Justice is satisfied. Wrath is satisfied. God's love is displayed. God's righteousness and God's love meet together at the cross. His justice and his love join hands. It is only through the cross that you and I can be redeemed. It is only through the cross that you and I can be delivered from God's wrath. That's why I say the cross determines our destiny. The cross is the crossroads between heaven or hell. Whether you put your trust in Jesus, whether you repent and believe in him, that determines your eternal destiny. I mean, the cross is a big deal. It's not just something that happened. It was something that had to happen because it was the eternal plan of God. And it was the eternal plan of God to redeem sinners cross changes everything and I can't think of an everything that is bigger than your eternal destiny, your eternal destiny think about where you will be forever determined by the cross and how you respond to the cross. The cross changes everything it's our message. the cross determines our message determines our destiny but third, the cross demands our devotion verse 23 And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's an immediate connection between what Jesus would do and what we as his followers must do. Now, in in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, Peter at this point rebukes Jesus. Jesus, you'll never die. You've come to be this Messiah. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then he turns and says, you need to understand what discipleship is going to entail. Mark's gospel also tells us that there's a a crowd nearby. So Jesus is not just speaking to, to his disciples at this point. He's speaking to the crowds. This is a general message. This is not just a, hey, those of you who already believe in me, here's, a, here's sort of an extra thing you could do if you kind of want to. No, this is a call to, to, to Christianity. This is a call to saving faith in verse 23. How do we respond to the cross? We respond to the cross by becoming a disciple of Jesus, by becoming a follower of Jesus, by becoming a believer in Jesus. In a word, by being born again. In a word, by becoming a Christian. But notice what the demand is in verse 23. It's not just, if any man will come after me, let him recite a prayer and then go on sinning and living how they want. No, it requires our total devotion to Jesus. The cross has huge implications on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who aims to imitate the master. And if the master is going to the cross, then if we're going to follow Jesus, we follow him to the cross as well. He's not calling us to do something other than what he himself has done, but saying, live in a way that is consistent with what I have done. So he's addressing the crowd. He's calling people to faith in him. And he's couching it in terms of taking up the cross and following him. This is another way of saying repent and believe in a a, a very picturesque and graphic kind of way. So it obviously starts with confessing Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of God. But listen, if you simply say those words, but you don't commit to Christ, you don't put your trust in Him, uttering those words will save nobody. If Jesus is Christ, if He is Messiah, that has huge implications on our lives. So you say, I want to be a Christian, I want to be a disciple. He says, here's the requirements in verse 23, shaped by the cross. If any man will come after me, if anybody wants to be one of my followers, wants to be one of those people who's going to follow me to glory... He must deny himself. Okay, to be a disciple, you must deny yourself. And what does that mean? Uh, Think in two ways. For one thing, it means denying self-rule. Right? And instead of me being in charge of my life, Jesus is in charge of my life. Hey, the essence of sin is I do what I want to do when I want to do it, right? The essence of repentance is I'm turning from my sin to trust Jesus. When you come to Christ, self-idolatry dies. When you come to Christ, self-righteousness dies. When you come to Christ, self-reliance dies. And I think that's the big thing that's being said here. The, The biggest way that we need to deny ourselves is to deny ourselves in the sense of realizing I cannot save myself. Far too many people are unwilling to deny themselves because they want to have that sense of I earned my salvation. That's not how it works. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by the cross. And when we come to the cross, we say... Nothing that I've done, everything that he's done, right? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not not my works, but his work on my behalf. So to deny yourself is another way of saying, reject all of your works. Your baptism is not going to save you. Your good works, your your morality, your church membership, your church attendance, your being nice to people. Deny self-reliance and rely on Jesus and him alone. Deny yourself. And then he says this. Shaped by the cross. The cross demanding our devotion. You deny yourself, and then he says you must take up your cross daily. You must take up your cross daily. Think about what the cross represents. we are talking about the cross the whole message. We think, well, the cross represents what Jesus did on our behalf. But go back to the first century world. Before it had any of the religious significance, we ascribe to it. When Jesus spoke this, the cross had no religious significance at all. It was not the symbol of a religion. You wouldn't have seen it in graveyards. You wouldn't have, none of that. It wouldn't have been in any jewelry. It wouldn't have been in any pictures or painting or artwork. The cross was an instrument of torture. The cross was an instrument of execution. The cross was a symbol of Rome's iron-fisted oppression. Just about 70, 80 years before the time of Jesus, there was a guy named Spartacus. You probably learned about him in history, uh, who started a slave's rebellion, right, against Rome. Crassus, the general, finally comes and defeats Spartacus in a battle. And what do the Romans do? They crucify around 6,000 of those rebels. They line the Appian Way leading into Rome, crosses on either side of the road, uh, people groaning in agony, dying, taking days to, to finally succumb to the horrors of crucifixion. It was a, it was a terror weapon. Right? That's what the cross was. It was a way of saying, do not defy Rome, or this too will happen to you. It was one of the most horrific ways to die. The cross. Jesus is saying, "Take up your cross." He's saying you need to be willing to die. You're gonna be a disciple. You got to be willing to die. This is not just a fly by night commitment. This is serious. It means you're gonna be willing to carry your own noose, so to speak. Carry your own electric chair. Take the instrument of your own execution and follow Jesus. That's the sense. Now. I think it means more than just a literal like everyone who follows Jesus is crucified. Hey listen, most people who believe in Jesus do not get martyred. Though we do need to be praying for those in Afghanistan who will be facing intense persecution in the coming months. If something doesn't change there, they will be facing this. Most of us we won't face this, but we do face the daily decision to die to ourselves. Die to my wants, die to my self-rule. Be willing to to, to die to my own desires, my own wants, my own sin, my own selfishness. What Jesus is saying here is being a disciple is a serious thing. It requires devotion. The cross demands devotion. The sense here is not just, hey, there there might be a hell out there. There might be a heaven out there. I think I'll hedge my bets and try Jesus, and we'll get some potlucks thrown in as well, right? No. You come to Jesus recognizing he's the only way and saying, I'm, I'm putting my lot in completely with Jesus. It's Jesus or it's nothing. And if this doesn't pan out, I have gambled everything on him. That's the sense of devotion. This is the sense of commitment, the sense of complete loyalty. Listen, following Jesus will cost you. Now, it probably won't cost us our lives in this country. I praise God for that. It probably won't cost you your job, though that may happen. There are Christian bakers, for example, Christian photographers who are being hammered by states like Colorado and Washington and Oregon for standing firm on the truth. But for most of us, it's probably not going to cost us that. But it might cost you some reputation. You might be regarded as a religious wacko because you're trying to tell people about Jesus. You might be regarded as bigoted by suggesting to people that they're a sinner who needs a savior. You might miss out on that promotion at work because you insist on saying, listen, I'm not working on Sunday. I'm going to go gather with God's people. It may cost you something to follow Jesus. It should cost us something. This is a cross-cultural life. Now, when I say cross-cultural, I don't mean go and move to India. But I mean living at odds with the culture, cross-cultural living. Now, the final part of verse 23, notice that, and follow me. Now, all the other commands here are in a tense that sort of refers to sort of a decisive act. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And in the sense of this one is be following me. Following Jesus is not just something you did one time. It's a a progressive, ongoing kind of action. So to be a disciple then, you go about following Jesus. So you come to faith in Jesus. You're born again. And then you don't just sort of leave that at the door, but you follow Jesus one step after another. The call to Christianity is a call to follow him in the path of obedience. Saving faith, you see, will lead to a life of... Following Christ. The cross is our means of redemption, yes, but it is also the motivation for our sanctification. It's the fact that Jesus died for me that makes me say I'm going to follow him day out, day in and day out in obedience. The cross demands complete devotion complete devotion to Jesus, following him. He becomes the center of our affections. When you become a Christian, you don't sign up to be part of a movement. You sign up to be devoted to a man, the man Christ Jesus. He's to be the one who takes first place. By the way, this whole notion of celebrity and Christianity don't mix. There's only one who is to be be the, the focus of our awe and our worship. It's Jesus Christ, right? The one who is at the center. The cross demands devotion. The cross determines our message. He's the Messiah who suffers. Determines our destiny because the cross changes eternal destinies. It's the means, the instrument of saving sinners. The cross demands devotion. But finally, I want you to see that the cross will determine our values. The cross will dominate your worldview. It will subvert what you think is important. It will require for you to, 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 to really turn upside down the values that are ingrained in us from birth. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, 25, 26, notice they all begin with the word for. What Jesus calls us to in verse 23 is an incredible demand. Hey, everything, on me, devotion, complete commitment, a willingness to die. You say, why? Right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. If I were like, hey, everyone, who wants to sign up for something that's going to kill you? You'd be like, not me. Unless, of course, it's worth it. We only do things that we understand are worth it, right? That's just how, how it works. So if I were like, hey, give me $10,000 of your money, you'd be like, no. i say, hey, I'm an investment firm. If you give me $10,000 of your money, I'll invest it. And 30 years from now, it'll be worth $100,000. You'd be like, oh, that makes sense, right? $10,000 versus $100,000. Time does its work. Makes sense, right? You, you do the math. You do the calculations. Verses 24, 25, and 26, Jesus is saying, do the spiritual math. Work out the spiritual equation. On one side you have following Jesus, suffering in this life, and on the other side of the equation, the other side of the, the balance, it's either eternal life or eternal death. It's either heaven or hell. That's that's what's at stake. And you you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize eternal life versus a little bit of present suffering. That makes sense. Now, the world would say, get everything you can right now. It's all about now. This is all we have. This is all you've got. Get the most toys. Have the most fun. Get the most comfort, the most enjoyment now. The cross says, lay all that aside because eternity is a whole lot longer than right now. Eternity is forever. Eternal joy is, is far greater than present suffering. That's what I'm saying. When the cross determines our values, there is a logic to this. He's not calling us to do something that is just sort of reckless and dumb. Like, yeah, just go give your life for Jesus. No, no, no. He's saying, give your life for me because it's going to be infinitely worth it. Right? So let's break this down. Verse 24. For whoever will, whoever wants, is the idea of that word will. Okay, not so much future tense, but the idea of volition. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You say, I don't don't want to sign up for this taking up the cross business. Like this dying for Jesus business. this, This giving up myself. It's so, okay, if you want to save your life, if you want to reject the claims that Jesus puts on your life, is says, in the end, you will lose your life. Now, here's the thing. There's kind of a double meaning here. The word life can mean life or it can mean soul. And there's a deliberate ambiguity here, right, in this, in this paradoxical statement. You want to keep your life, the right now here kind of life, you will lose your soul in the long run. That's what he is saying. And conversely, whoever will lose... His life for my sake, and you give up the physical life, the here and now, will in the end save it. Right? So that, that's the option, either eternal life or eternal death, either heaven or hell. Now those are the options. That's why we're dealing with salvation here, not just some higher echelon of service. So Jesus is saying there is a counting of the cost. Are you willing to, to, to count the cost? Are you willing to say i believe jesus listen you only do what this says if you believe this is why salvation is by faith this is not a works thing this is a faith thing i say yes i i believe that jesus is who he says he is and because he says he is who he says he is i'm going to trust him and stake everything on him that's faith faith is so much more guys than just saying oh yeah yeah, i agree with those three things you know, i'm a sinner and jesus died on the cross for me and yep i agree with that okay that's good we have to agree with that truth propositionally but it's saying, I, I believe it so strongly, I'm going to stake everything on it. Stake everything on it. It's like when your friend does one of those little trust exercises, being like, hey, do you think I'd catch you if I fall back? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I would. And they are like, all right, do it. Right? That, that's what Jesus is saying. If you believe me, then, then do it. Commit everything to me. Now, verse 25, he gives us another reason, another value that the cross shapes and determines. The first one in verse 24 is the cross determines, de- demands that we have an eternal perspective, Right? Save my life or lose my life. Verse twenty-five. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? He's now using sort of the financial imagery. What is a man profited? Right. So you do your balance sheets, and you okay. We've got expenses over here, and we've got our you, you know, how much it costs to pay the employees, and we're going to figure out what the profit is, what you kind of have left over at the end, so to speak. So, okay. You do the math. What would you be profited if you gained the whole world, but then you lost your soul? Right? Let me give it, put it to you this way. Someone comes in and they put a gun to your head. And they'll say, all right, I'm going to give you a million dollars. How many of you would say, I, I would like a million dollars? I would take... If someone were to offer me a million dollars, I would take it. I, just be, be honest. Okay, I want a million dollars. Okay, do You have a million dollars. I'm going to give you... A huge house with a swimming pool, golf course, like whatever you want, you'll have your options here on what you want on your dream house. We even have that person from that, uh, Joanna Gaines will come in and decorate for you. Let's go ahead and sweeten the deal here. Anything you want in the house, okay? Uh, what kind of car do you want? Okay, a Lamborghini, that Lamborghini will be parked in the driveway. Okay, so you got your house, you're a million dollars, all of these things. By the way, I'll make sure that you are popular, right? You'll be, you'll be world famous, everybody will be wanting to do interviews with you. You have popularity, power, fame, money. One condition. Okay, here's the only condition for getting all of those things. Once you get it, I'm going to shoot you. Okay, would there anyone say, sure, I'll take the house, the Lamborghini, the car, all of those things. It'd all be mine. The guy just gets to shoot me. Anybody saying, yeah, that's a good deal. No, it's a terrible deal because there's no value that you get. The, the, the value of your life is beyond anything that we can put a price tag on. Right? We'd be like, the house, the car, none of that stuff matters life is just beyond measuring. That's the argument Jesus is making in verse 25. Some of you will make that very choice today. You'll make that very choice today. You'll say, yeah, I hear what Jesus is saying here about demanding my soul, my life, my all in exchange for eternal life. But I kind of want the fun, the fun, the happiness, the sin right now. And you'll walk out of here and say, give me the Lamborghini and I don't care if I get shot when it's over. You make the Faustian bargain, right? That, that story of Dr. Faustus where he makes the deal with, with, with Satan to be like, years and years of pleasure, and then I have your soul at the end. Tragic story. And yet millions are making the exact same Faustian bargain every day because they refuse to follow Jesus. Now, the opposite's also true give up the house, the car, all, everything. Jesus is all yours. And he says, in the end, you have eternal life and eternal joy and eternal reward, and it's absolutely worth it. Sin is foolish. Sin will offer you short-term gain, but require an eternal payment. And that payment plan on that is not a good idea, right? It's, it it's, it's when you're going to lose out on in an eternity. And sacrifice for Jesus makes sense. There is a wisdom and a joy of this. This is what inspired Jim Elliot, the the famous missionary who gave his life as a martyr to say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gave what you cannot keep your life. Nobody, you're not going to keep your life. A hundred years from now, I don't think any of us are going to be around. There might be a few of you who are like, man, you're really going to defy expectations. 200 years from now, none of us are going to be here, but you will be somewhere forever. And yet you're going to sacrifice that. The cross demands devotion, Right? Now verse 26 goes on, for whosoever will be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the son of man be ashamed. You say, you know what, I don't want to sign up with Jesus. That's, that's weird, that's unpopular, that's for wimps, right? Karl Marx says religion is the opiate of the people. That's just kind of the, the painkiller to get people through a hard life, make them feel better about themselves, I'm not signing up for religion. I'm not signing up for Jesus. That's just, that's for whims. That's for my grandma. That's for other people who can't handle life. I'm tough. I'll do it on my own. Jesus says, you're ashamed of me. Now, I think verse 26 is the person who looks at the cost and is like, I don't want to be part of that group. They're a bunch of weirdos. By the way, first century Christians were regarded as a bunch of weirdos. There's all these people who are worshiping. A crucified Messiah, and the world's like, what's wrong with you? This, you an executed criminal, he's the guy that you're really going to lay your life down. Makes a lot of sense, right? People, people thought they were nuts. They were, they were regarded by people in Rome as cannibals because they took the Lord's Supper and they misunderstood the imagery. They're like, oh, you guys eat people's blood and flesh? like That's weird. They were misunderstood. They were hated. It says in the book of Acts, no man durst join himself unto them. Right? It cost. This group of outcasts, this group of people who were on the outs of society, Some people say, I don't want to be part of that. I want to be sort of respectable. I want to be liked by the world. I want to be liked by this culture. So some of the rough edges of Christianity, I'll try to do sort of part of Christianity, but leave the embarrassing parts off. So like, yeah, love your neighbors yourself. Okay, that's cool. I'll I'll keep that. But marriage between one man and one woman? Mm, That's not really culturally acceptable. I'm going to cut that edge off. Mm, These parts of Christianity that that, that, that demand my soul, my life, my all, I'll, I'll leave them off on the edge. This desire to make Christianity palatable Selling out the soul, the authority of Christianity. He says, whoever is ashamed of me, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. He says, you reject me now, I'll reject you then. You reject Jesus today, you say, I don't want to to trust Jesus, I don't want to repent, I don't want to submit to him like that. If you die in that state, when Jesus comes back, when the day of judgment comes, he'll say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What a serious thing. Now, turn this around positively. A Christian is one who loves Jesus. A Christian is one who is willing to be identified with Jesus, who is willing to identify with Jesus' people. Um, And, yeah, there's going to be times that we're ashamed and we're not as bold as we should, but a Christian is willing, willing to say, I'm with Jesus. The opposite is also true. Look at verse 27. I tell you of a truth, that there are some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, a lot going on in that verse, but here's what he is saying in a nutshell. There's going to be a reward for following me. There's a reward. You'll see the glory of the kingdom. You'll be able to spend all eternity with Jesus, delighting in him. In other words, it will be worth it all, right? Every sacrifice made for Jesus, all suffering that we go through in this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8 and verse 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4. This is what motivates Christians to walk out of the council after beating in Acts five, being beaten in Acts 5, 41, rejoicing. So verse 27, it could be referring to the transfiguration, could be referring to the fact that these guys saw the risen Christ, the establishment of the church, see it in this life. But what's implied here is there's going to be eternal reward when Jesus comes back. It will be worth it all. What Jesus is laying out here, beloved, is something that is absolutely countercultural, absolutely cross-cultural. It's going to take you against the grain of everything our society believes. Our culture will say it's all about you. Just look out for you. You're the one that matters. Christianity says it's all about Jesus. Culture says follow your dreams. Jesus says follow me. Culture says live for yourself. The cross says die to yourself. Culture says, demand your rights. Jesus says, surrender your rights. Biblical Christianity is not about celebrity status. It's not about amassing fame and fortune. It's not about regaining influence or reinstating some past epoch of cultural supremacy. It's about one thing, the cross, the glory of Jesus Christ. The crucified, the risen, the reigning, and the returning Jesus. I think a great way to close is with the words of Paul in Galatians 6. He says this, But God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me.